Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Questioning Jesus. This series provides honest answers to some of the most important questions people ask regarding the truth of Jesus and Christianity. Good morning. Before we start with our text and things and and going into prayer, I just want to say that this is one of those topics that needs so much seriousness and care in our culture. And so today I have, I have kind of a threefold purpose. My first one is to, with the apologetic series, you know, equip believers to speak with a, a straightforward uh, gentleness and a confident humility about the truth that God has revealed in his word. But really, I, I also want to preach the gospel with respect to our sexuality. And I think that that's going to do a couple things. That, that might bring new people to see the Lord though they've struggled with this issue that they thought divided them from the Lord for so long. And that might also help people who are already believers who are struggling. And so I'm really hoping that, that those three things are going to speak to you. One of those three things at least is going to speak to you today as we deal with this very difficult subject. So uh, I'll also say that I can't be comprehensive. That's why I, I, you know, I'm calling this the questions of sexuality. Uh, because there's, there's just no one answer and we can't just give one proof text. We can't just give one little thing. So I'm going to try to be as comprehensive and as full as I can, but I know that, that I'm going to leave some uh, things out and not be able to address everything. So if you're one of those people who's asking these questions at the end of the sermon, if your question is not answered, uh, you, you can speak to me, you can speak to the elders of this church. And I, I really uh, encourage you to, to bring those questions before the Lord and before his people. Uh, because the Lord answers these questions, and he has something to say to us today as we go to his word. Uh, So as we start today, we're going to look at Revelation 19, uh, and that means that we're actually looking at the end of what I'm going to talk about today. We're looking at the end of history as we know it, where all creation and recreation are brought together with the Lord. But we're starting at this end because it is going to help us orient ourselves as we answer different questions about uh, sex, sexuality, and what God has commanded, and what the church believes about uh, what God has commanded. So we're going to start with our word, and then I'll pray. The, the word is from Revelation 19, 6 through 9, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, and that's what's on the screen. Uh, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your very good creation, your gracious forbearance and steadfastness and faithfulness despite our sin, your love in sending your Son to save your people, and your plan and power that brings all things by your Spirit into the consummate glory that you've had before the world began. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom. Amen. 
Testament. So I, I put this one up front because we're going to go through uh, God's redemptive history in a very short period of time, and I want us to have the end in view. I want us to be able to see that all of this, all the questions of sexuality are tied to the imperishable union between Christ and his people. They're tied to the, this wonderful message that God is going to dwell with his people forever. So all the questions of sexuality cannot be separated from this big, large picture. And I think we get into most of our trouble when we're talking about sexuality when we separate it out or when we let other people separate it out from that. We end up getting bogged down in proof texts and arguments about words that, while we may end up saying the right thing, don't always give people that wholehearted framework that they need. So I'm really hoping that we'll be able to see more about uh, what God has said from the beginning to the end that will really help us as we talk to ourselves, as we talk to other believers, and as we talk to unbelievers about these questions. One of the biggest problems that we're going to run into in getting into these questions is that we have a, a cultural view of Christians that says that they're prudes, that they're shy about their sexuality. And, and I understand the feeling of shyness, but I'm going to encourage you today that the scripture is not shy about sexuality. The scripture, and when I say the scripture, I mean the God who wrote the scripture speaks very plainly and straightforwardly about it. And I encourage you as God's people who speak the oracles of God to this world that you can speak very plainly and straightforwardly about sex. You don't have to get lost in these uh, winding you know, descriptions about anything. You can just say what the Lord has said. You can give this framework. So we get this idea that maybe Christians are prudes, and, and we're not prudes. It's that we treat sex with reverence because we know that it's tied to something bigger. Just a quick quote from a, a magazine article by Kyle Harper. He says, In our secular age, just as in the early days of Christianity, differences in sexual morality are really about the clash between different pictures of the universe and the place of the individual within it. So today we're going to look at the Bible's picture of the universe and the place of the individual within it. And we're going to do that through the the four basic categories of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And I chose the word consummation for the end there. It's used in theology all the time, but in order to show this overlap in the concepts of sexuality and that final glory state that we're looking forward to as Christians. So we're seeing that the, the revelation of God going through these four stages is going to comment on sexuality in every stage, and we're going to be able to draw a thread and really see that some of the questions about sexuality that seem so burdensome and so difficult and tricky and sensitive in our culture have to do with a confusion about creation and fall, or about fall and redemption, or a total ignorance about consummation. And so I'm hoping that this will give all of us a, a much clearer view of what we need to be saying uh, when we're, or what we need to be thinking about when we're discussing these things. Uh, and when we're praying about them and when we're ministering to others about them. So we're ending up at consummation, but we're starting in creation. And uh, before I get into any text, I'll just summarize really quickly. You know, in Genesis 1, it says that God created man, male and female. He created him in his image, male and female. It's very important for us as Christians to emphasize that fact, that it's not uh, exclusive to the male that the two are created in the image 
of God. It's also important as Christians to emphasize that there are two. Don't gloss over the fact that there's male and female. And right after he creates them in Genesis 1, the command is given to be fruitful and multiply. There we're seeing immediately God has in mind that the the, uh, design for the original creation has to do with heterosexual reproduction. I'm just going to speak very plainly. Being fruitful and multiplying requires sexual reproduction. And he made the male and female, and it's connected. Those things are not right next to each other for no reason. So the, the beginning is commenting on human sexuality and saying there's an order to it, there's a design to it. It's not giving us all the picture that we need, but it's giving us this basic framework for what God wants us to do, what God wanted our first parents to do. I'm talking about Adam and Eve in the garden with regards to their sexuality. And then we see moving forward in Genesis 2, we're still talking about creation because it it sort of pulls out that timeline and it talks about God creating the man first from the dust. He forms them out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him. And you know what that says about us? That says that being in the image of God, that we're both body and soul. We are both material and immaterial. Those two things are united. And guess what? It's not just your soul that images God. Your body does too. Why else would it talk about the arm of the Lord? All those things that some people try to dismiss as anthropomorphic in the Bible, you know, we're just applying human things onto God. It's the opposite. God is applying godly things onto humans. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. So when we talk about God's arm, we understand it because we know what our arm does, but we also need to know that our arm is a metaphor for God's arm. God doesn't have a body. God has power, though. God exercises his power through will. And so those little details in the Bible that might be really confusing, you say, does God do that? And it's like, well, God does do that, and we're getting the picture through a human description because we're created in his image. Okay, there's a lot there. (laughs) But, but But we're getting this idea that we're created in his image, male and female, for heterosexual reproduction, and that our body and soul are both part of that image. Then we come to Genesis 2.22, and this is the one that's on the screen right now. It says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is talking about that, that very good. Remember when it was just Adam alone, God said it's not good for him to be alone. It wasn't quite done yet. It's only when woman comes onto the scene that we get that full picture from Genesis, uh, Genesis 1 and now in Genesis 2 saying this is the very good creation, the two together, able to fulfill that command to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the beasts and so on. And you know what the response of Adam really is? If you're looking at this bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, the first response is poetry and song. This is good. This is very good. And also we have, uh, again, implied heterosexual reproduction. We've got the two becoming one flesh. We've got this mention of nakedness with no shame because there's no shame in obeying God with regard to sexuality. And so, you know, nakedness does not only talk about sexuality, but it certainly includes this idea that the two are made one and there's nothing for them to bat an eyelash at. So much for 
God's very good creation. But we have to move to the fall because we have to be realistic. We can't just pretend that we're going to go, you know, undo all these taboos and re-enter the garden and pretend that nothing happened. No, something happened. A single event in history with enduring consequences, even to this day, happened. And you know what? Those consequences were not only um, about uh, what you might think of as holy spiritual things, because we talked about how our spirit and our flesh, our body and our soul are united together. So there are sexual consequences of the fall. Let me put it this way. So part of the fall is that you have the woman submitting her understanding to a creeping thing of the field. And then you have the man submitting his understanding to the woman. That is exactly the opposite of the order of creation, man, woman, dominance over the beast. You have a flip in that order, and that flip in the order has consequences that reach all, over all creation. And you know what? One of the first things that's mentioned is their nakedness. They become ashamed of their nakedness in front of each other and in front of God because they're no longer in that right understanding with God where they have the ability to see his glory on each other. They have stepped out from that and they are now in league with that ancient serpent, the devil. They are no longer able to see themselves as they were created to be. And so much changes when that changes. There are many things to say about the fall and I can't talk about all of those things today. But I do want to say that... uh, the Old Testament, all the way through, is dealing with this issue. We're going to come to the New Testament, but I, I want to emphasize that, you know, I'm skipping thousands of years, but Paul, in Romans 1, that we're going to read right now, is also summarizing thousands of years regarding human sexuality. Look at Romans 1, verses 21 through 27. We're still talking about the fall. He says, For although they, talking about our first parents and really everyone born in Adam afterwards, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So far we're talking about idolatry. We're talking about false worship. And guess what it's intimately, directly tied to? Sexuality. He goes on in verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, for the reason of idolatry, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Paul is not tiptoeing around this issue. Now, I don't want to say that the only effect of idolatry is sexual sin. Paul's not saying that either. But he's saying in his Roman culture and in our culture now, this is one of the most obvious signs of the fall. And he's not making it up. This isn't Paul being uh, some sex-obsessed man who's got an axe to grind about this issue. This is from Exodus 34, Leviticus 17, Deuteronomy 31, Judges 2, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 6, the entire book of Hosea. 
Amos 2, Acts 15, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 4, Revelation 17, and pretty much everywhere in between. The point is that the Bible talks a lot about sexuality, and it often couples sexuality and idolatry. It describes idolatry in the language of sexuality, when it'll say, especially in the older translations, that Israel whored after other gods. That's what a lot of those verses were referring to. We need to see that when our first parents exchanged the truth of God for the lie, that lie of the serpent, they relinquished their perfect fellowship with the Lord who made them. They stepped out of that, of that glory cloud. And then God let them go in the direction of their rebellious heart's desire. So think about this. That First, I mean, it's pretty clear what Paul is saying about homosexuality, that it's a twisting of the original creation design. And as Christians, we just need to be clear about that. We can't sort of sidestep that issue. I picked Romans 1 because it's one of the clearest ones, and I'll talk about some of the ones that are less clear later. But we just have to say that. We have to confess the truth of Scripture. And we need to also confess that here, what's being talked about as natural is the created order, and what's contrary to nature is the fallen state of affairs. We can't confuse those two. We can't confuse that very good creation with all the distortions and problems that come from the sin of our first father. What is contrary to nature here also doesn't follow from ignorance about God. It's not that they didn't know any better and they're excused for it. It comes from suppressing the knowledge that we all have. We all know enough to worship God for who he is, but we suppress what we know in order to judge for ourselves in order to say about ourselves that the corruption we've inherited from Adam is very good instead of the original design. And so here we're coming up against a little bit of the rhetoric in our culture about being born this way. I mean, pop songs are written about this stuff. And it's a powerful rhetorical device to say, I'm born this way, I have to behave this way. And as Christians, in some sense, we have to confess, you're right. Because of Adam's disobedience, every single person in this room was born in sin. Every single person on the planet from then to now, day one, was born under the corruption of Adam. And so just because you're born a certain way doesn't mean you can't be reborn another way, and I'll talk about that later on, uh, but being able to do what we want, too. So seeing that the, this idea in Paul, that idolatry connected to sexuality, the freedom to do whatever I want, to do what seems right in my own eyes, that is the judgment of God. That's a sign that you're not headed in the right direction. So Christians, when you look around at the culture, doing what they want, when they want, don't envy them. That kind of liberation is slavery to sin. We don't need it. We don't want it. When we're denying the God who made us, we end up denying the foundation, the parameters, the means, the end, for all the goodness. So in Adam, our decisions regarding right and wrong, good and evil, all of it gets twisted and out of tune with the created order. But, as Paul says in Romans 6, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching, that's what we're talking about, to which you were committed. 
And having been set free from sin, you became slaves to righteousness instead. So we have to see that this fall, we don't have to let ourselves sit there. We don't have to rechain ourselves to that old way. We're coming to the hinge now between the fall and redemption. In Adam, the whole human race is in league with our enemy, the devil. We're stuck under the serpent's commendation that God didn't really say what he meant. You won't really die. We're stuck under that condemnation of the lie. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil, and especially that one regarding sexuality. To overcome the fallen world and to live perfectly, to take our punishment, to give us righteousness instead. So when we're talking about redemption, we need to see, yeah, everyone in Adam is born a certain way, in sin. But everyone in Christ is no longer under the dominion of the serpent. You're free to live with God and for God and like God. So what does that have to do with sexuality? Well, you can even see in the book of Romans, he'll, he'll talk about it in many ways. Uh, but I think one of the... One of the most positive ways, it's not, a, it's not a negative command like don't do this, one of the most positive ways is in Romans 12:1, where he says that we're supposed to use our bodies as a living sacrifice, for that is our spiritual worship, our reasonable service to God. Think about that. The unity of body and soul is being confirmed again. The deeds done in the body matter. They're not separable. We can't twist our body in... in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, he's going to say that we're supposed to control our bodies in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like Gentiles, that is like unbelievers. And he adds that God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So the redemption that comes about from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work that he did should have direct consequences on how we use our bodies, and that includes sexuality. That's why we have so many different commands in virtually every book of the New Testament about our sexuality. We also need to really see that in redemption, the Holy Spirit commands us to live according to God's design. Not only commands us, but also empowers us. And we're going to see, start to see, too, that it's not just about God's design in the beginning. It's about redemption in the future. Now we're coming to Matthew 19. And this is going to be Jesus speaking with the Pharisees. They're, they're trying to trick him. In uh, 19, starting at verse 3, And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning and made them male and female, <clears throat> and made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I'll pause in the middle of the reading to say, Do you see that Jesus in answering a question about sexuality goes immediately to Genesis 1 and 2. That's a good recommendation for doing it in your own conversations. Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a, a certificate of divorce and send her away? 
He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's a hard word. But notice the distinction that Jesus makes between the creation, the very good order, and the fallen state of affairs. He says, Moses didn't institute divorce because God thinks divorce is a good idea. God wasn't commanding you to give certificates of divorce because he wants you to get divorced. God commanded Moses to give a certificate of divorce to protect women from the sins of men. That's what the Old Testament certificate of divorce is about. And so the Pharisees are blurring that line between creation and fall, and they're saying, this is all right. This is good. This is acceptable to God. Jesus says, no, keep the distinction. The very good order and the fallen state of affairs are not the same thing. Now we're going to enter something very different. We're still in redemption. But Jesus Christ is going to talk about something that hasn't really been talked about in this detail before. We're still in Matthew 19, the very next verse, starting at verse 10. It should be the next slide. He says, The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But Jesus said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Suddenly, when we're talking about eunuchs, he, he gives three different kinds of eunuchs, and that's, that fits with the way the word is used in the ancient world. People who are unable either to have sex or to have children, either because of birth or uh, castration, which was a common practice in several different societies, or because of choice, in this case, dedication to the kingdom of heaven. We don't use the word eunuch anymore, generally speaking. We talk about celibacy. Jesus here is commending celibacy to the church. Not for everyone, but for certain ones who can receive that word. And when they read that and they hear that in their heart, they think, that word might be for me. And I want to put this forth that celibacy doesn't make sense if we're only thinking about the created order where we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. But it does make sense if Jesus Christ is recreating the world, if he's doing something new, and if he's gathering in his church, if the being fruitful and multiplying has to do with converting hearts to the Lord, then celibacy makes a lot of sense. And that's why Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians 7 and says, I wish you guys were like me. I wish there were more celibates who could dedicate themselves to this cause without having a family to think about. They could be a lot more free to minister the gospel. His point is that this calling is a high and holy calling. And it's looking not just back at creation, but forward to recreation, looking forward to the harvest of the fruit, looking forward to the children of God being brought into God's glory, looking forward to the bride as a whole being brought to Christ. So I encourage us as Christians, we'll talk about this at the end too, that, that we need to have a, a very biblical view of singleness as well. Because it's not only marriage that's commended. But that doesn't mean marriage is not commended. Marriage is still very good. Marriage is still something instituted by God from the beginning. We're going to see in Ephesians 5 now. 
uh, he's talking to wives and husbands. We'll, we'll do wives first and then husbands. Wives, in verse 22, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here we're seeing uh, an analogy being built. Husbands are as to Christ, as wives are to the church. So not only celibacy is looking forward to that final day, but also marriage, we're finding out that from the beginning through now is pointing forward to something else, something that we haven't seen yet. Ephesians 5, uh, moving on to verse 25, talking to husbands, he says, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because we are members of the body. Therefore, guess what we're going to say, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, the Genesis 2 poetry, is profound and I'm saying that it relates to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So these commands about marriage are not commands merely about tradition or the way things work best. This isn't psycho self-help. This isn't just giving us uh, a good paradigm that we can flex with. This is a profound mystery. Think about the garden when Adam has that poetic moment when he first sees Eve. That came right after the threat of death. That came right after God said, don't eat of this tree. If you eat of this tree, you'll die. Then the Lord God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. Right next to each other. And what he's doing is he's saying that part, even before the fall happened, was God saying, I have a vision of my people united to me in the sun. This mystery is profound. And again, We can't reduce these to mere traditions. Christians do not defend traditional marriage. We defend biblical marriage. That's why we get labeled as prudes, because we're we're mixing it up just a little bit too much. We're we're mixing it into the culture just a little bit too much. And this is going to extend to our understanding of of gender and all these things. We we sometimes uh, elevate cultural norms a little bit too high when we talk about defending traditional marriage. And I just encourage you to change your language on that point and to really meditate on the scripture and what the scripture says, that we're not, we're not defending the traditions of men. We're defending a profound mystery that points to the union of God with his people. That forward-pointing message in Matthew 19, in 1 Corinthians 7, here in Ephesians, commending both celibacy and heterosexual, monogamous, committed marriage, those are pointing forward to the final day when our bodies are changed and we dwell with God face to face. So now we're coming into the consummation message. And there are some really difficult things here that we don't understand fully. And I'm not going to claim to understand them fully because 
In 1 John, he says that we don't actually know all of what we're going to be. All we know is that we're going to be like Jesus when we see him face to face. And so there's a little bit of mystery here, and I'm not going to claim to uh, give us an in-depth uh, vision of what it is, but I am going to say what Jesus says in Matthew 22:30 when he's asked about a woman who's remarried seven times and the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection are trying to say, whose husband is she going to be in the resurrection? Jesus says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's one of those ones that we don't talk about in Sunday school for some reason. We don't talk about it for some reason because we, we, we don't see how it relates directly to very practical issues like marriage and sexuality. We'll be like angels in heaven. Not claiming I know all of what that means, but I do know that marriage is put forth as a temporal version of a much higher, deeper, better spiritual reality. That God's commands concerning sexuality do not have their basis in the preference of Christians or in the traditions of Judaism, but in the sovereign plan of God for dwelling with his people. I'll repeat that over and over again because it's the most important point here for orienting our conversations and, and answering questions of unbelievers and so forth. We're coming to our final passage now, the one we started with, Revelation 19. And I hope that as I, I I'm going to read uh, verse 7 and verse 9, and I hope you can see it with, with uh, a greater depth this time that we, that we read through it. In verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And down in verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ has saved his people from their sin, raised them from the dead, both spiritually as now and bodily in that final resurrection. And the result is that by the Spirit's work in individual hearts and lives, that they've done good works to adorn themselves, to purify their hearts, the Spirit working in them, through them, on them. And now they're being viewed collectively all together as the church in the new heavens and the new earth. In the church, the bride, also called the new Jerusalem, there are many images here laid at the end of Revelation, she has been betrothed to Christ now by his sacrifice. She is being cleansed by his perfect obedience, which is still happening at the throne of God as he makes intercession for us, as he has sealed us with his spirit, as we are looking forward to being raised to everlasting life in fellowship with God in paradise. We can't separate our sexuality from this image. And so just to summarize, we, we see that there's a very good plan for human sexuality. We see it's distorted by the fall in so many ways. We see that when Christ comes, he knows the distortion. He knows the deepest thoughts of our hearts. He knows what we have judged to be right is not right, and he's there to heal that problem, among many others. And to orient our eyes to things that are above, so that sexuality is not merely a, a private matter that I, I can't talk about and I can't answer questions about and I can't think about, but that it causes me more and more to glorify Christ's incarnation, Christ's perfect life, Christ's death as a sacrifice 
for our sins, Christ's resurrection in power, his ascension, I'm going to say it again, that was his betrothal, that was his engagement to the church, his bride. And we're looking forward to that wedding day when we will confess, or I'm sorry, when he will confess over us, behold, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And we will glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, we, when we're thinking about questions, we'll, we'll, we'll just look at three questions today. They're common questions, and again, I can't be exhaustive. Uh, none of us really can be, but I hope that this framework gives us a way to, to answer it without just relying on a proof text. Not that a proof text is wrong, but that proof texts are, are much more easily sort of um, swept under the rug and, and sidestepped. But when you give this cosmic plan, when you say, my sexuality is not my preference, it's my calling in Christ, suddenly the conversation has changed. So does the Bible really condemn all forms of homosexuality? Well, yeah, we can list many, many verses. The one in Romans 1, I think, is sufficient that we looked at earlier to say, yes, homosexuality is incompatible with God's, uh, for God's redeemed people. It doesn't fit. It's incompatible because it's a distortion of the creation, and it's incompatible because it doesn't point forward to that consummation. And, and I'm, I'm giving you that framework because I think that's helpful. I'll give you an example. In 1 Corinthians 6, there's a, a list of sexual sins, different sexual sins, adultery and uh, sexual immorality. And um, we're given this list of people who can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And on that list, the ESV will say uh, men who practice homosexuality. That's actually uh, a smoothing over of two different words in the Greek. And I have to speak very plainly because this is part of the conversation that you might have with an unbeliever. The first word re refers to somebody who's passive in a homosexual act. And the second word re refers to somebody who's active in a homosexual act. Paul doesn't, he can't blink away from it because he knows he has to address the issue. And it's just very clear that we're getting all sides of that issue saying, you can't do this and think that you're going to just walk right through into the kingdom of heaven. You can't, with an unrepentant heart, say, I was born this way, and I'm going to do this thing that seems right in my own eyes. Paul's saying, you know, the practice is wrong. I think Romans 1, 2 is saying that the desires are wrong. And as I say it, that can be very heavy and very difficult to talk about. Because people, you're, you're not only saying that what they've done in secret is wrong, but what they think and feel and all that is wrong. And you, you end up in a position where you've just called somebody wrong through and through, as if you're right through and through. Mm -hmm. Now, we need to also communicate that sexual sin is on a big list of sins, none of which, lying, for example, is fit for the kingdom of heaven. And that all of us are not only born in sin, but continually struggling with sin. All the people of God have these issues. And I'll, I'll just say it right here, that a lot of the people of God struggle with homosexual desires. Genuine, true believers do have this struggle carried over from their sinful flesh, carried over from the old man, and it is hard. It might be a years-long, a lifelong struggle with that sin. 
every sin, all of our lusts are addressed by the blood of Christ. And so you might end up in a position where somebody feels like you've called them wrong through and through, and that is the opportunity when you have to say, and Jesus Christ, who is right through and through, is offering you his righteousness. He's offering you everything you need for life and godliness in this moment. Yes, homosexuality is incompatible with kingdom life. But no, homosexuals are not farther away from our offer of the gospel, which should be free and to all. And sexual sin in general is not especially disqualifying. No, the offer of the gospel needs to be free for all. Yes, we assert there will be change. You cannot go on doing the same thing that you're doing. You cannot let those thoughts happen without wrestling with them, without bringing them to the Lord, without asking the Spirit for His help. But the good news of the transforming power in Christ is still available for people who feel like they're stuck in that old sin. When we're thinking about the second question, what about people who are born a certain way? We've addressed this a little bit. I just want to reassert it that Jesus Christ says everyone needs to be reborn in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is a powerful witness. It's a powerful counter to a rhetoric that's so lost in the failed distinction between creation and fall. Being born a certain way does not excuse you from that offer. It doesn't, it doesn't preclude you from choosing Christ and from being remade in his image. The last one, why do Christians insist on maintaining sexual and gender binaries, male and female, man and woman, and exclude transgender and gender-fluid persons? Well, part of the problem with the current transgender rhetoric is that it denies the distinction between male and female, and it also sort of ignores the fact that the Bible says that they're both made in the image of God, so we've got a problem there already. It also denies the integral unity of body and soul. This is probably the most important one for discussing this question, because you've got people arguing that they need to have their bodies changed to fit their minds. Nope. I mean, Paul himself says there's a law of sin at work in my body that's competing with the law of my mind, but never for a moment does he think that the body is evil. The body is not the problem. The body is the one that God gave you. And that, that problem, that uh, <clears throat> perceived, uh, perception of needing a different body is a serious problem, and we need to be very careful when we're talking to people about it, but we want to affirm the fact that God has given them the exact body that they need. That transgender rhetoric is actually just ancient Gnosticism brought right up. They're thinking their body is impersonal and their, their spirit is non-bodily and totally disconnected from it. We have, to, we have to bring people to realize that their body and their souls were both joined together by God and his power for a certain purpose. 
And that brings us, in the sensitivity here, we have to be sensitive to the fact that some men and some women are not going to fit the cultural patterns for masculinity and femininity. And I think when Jesus is giving us a commendation of celibacy, and, and uh, Paul as well, that we need to acknowledge that there are men in the church who are not going to be husbands and fathers, and there are women in the church who are not going to be wives and mothers. And we need to stop forcing people to think of themselves that way. Pressuring young people to suddenly get married. Because that's the only way to glorify God. No. So, as we're talking to people who feel like they don't fit, we do have to, we have to be very clear about the truth of Scripture, but we also have to be very sensitive about where they do actually fit. That God has made a place that he does require change. But that he also gives us the power for that change. And as we apply, I'll just, I'll just give us our last points. As we think about this, as we meditate in our hearts, the biblical sexual ethic is not arbitrary. It's woven by God into the fabric of creation from the beginning and foreshadows and images that final glorious destiny for the redeemed people of God. Two, we need to see that sex and sexuality are very important, but the idea of sexual identity is a myth of our modern culture. We see that when Jesus says we're going to be like angels in heaven, not marrying and giving in marriage. There's a, there's a difference. Whatever is eternal in you is not totally determined by your sexual identity? No, the scripture doesn't speak that way. Our identity is not reducible to our sexuality, though sexuality is very important in our lives. Third, I hope we see that sexual sin is not just a problem for those outside the church, and we have to be gentle, kind, firm, straightforward with Christians who struggle in these areas, and we have to be ready to remove the beam from our own eyes before we start tackling those problems. So if you're talking to someone about sexuality, you might need to be very, very honest with yourself first. And last, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, even for the sexually immoral, in order to restore especially them to right fellowship with himself and to call them to holiness in reflection of his holiness so that they would enjoy the eternal bond imaged as the marriage between the church and the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your work, and we ask that you'd help us today to take in all of this information, even a little bit of it, Lord. We just need your word to renew our minds and cleanse us. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us directly. There's too much here that we that we uh, can't address, we can't speak perfectly in every conversation, but Lord, I pray that you would give us clear speech in talking with believers and unbelievers about the issues of sexuality. And more than that, Lord, I pray that you would give us minds that are lifted up to our Savior who's seated at your right hand so that these issues would not bog us down, so that we wouldn't be drawn into only earthly thoughts as we answer questions of sexuality in, the, in our own lives and in the lives of others, but that we would seek and yearn for 
that final glory, that promise that's given to us as a seal in the Holy Spirit, that we would be able to enjoy that fellowship and engagement to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand up together, and I want to encourage you. You were given, and you can get off of the website, uh, some other materials for this week for a kind of discussion and devotions that Philip prepared to go along with the teaching. Uh, You were just given a lot to chew on. This was a, what, what theologians refer to as a biblical theology of something. In other words, you start with Genesis, and you roll to Revelation. I can't commend any more than than I'm saying right now what Philip just did for us because one of the biggest reasons we have a problem in the church today is we followed our culture we try to pull something out and just you can't do that that's that's separating what God has joined together and that's what gets us in trouble so you were just given a lot of stuff to chew on and think through and digest which is excellent so I would encourage you take those questions this week you were given this morning You can get them off the website and meditate and think on that because how many of us realize this is a hot topic in our culture right now? Some of these other questions you might not get all the time, but you you can't avoid this question. It is out there, and it is current and relevant. And the good news is Jesus has an answer for this. It's his good gift to us, and it is where we're heading. So uh, I encourage you now, I'm going to do the benediction I encourage you to receive the blessing of our God. Now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. Go forth full of the Word of God and the power of the Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church. If you would like to support this ministry, please go to www.brcc.church and click the Give tab.